just to think that we've entered this 24-7, 365 season of prayer. Uh, we're, not 365. Uh, we're doing it for 40 days. <laughs> and we're just, again, not taking ourselves too seriously in this, but at the same time recognizing that this is a great way for us to be the church. Um, this is the age of the church. Uh, this is a time when God is going to raise his church up. Uh, and one of the main things that we are called to be as a church is a nation of priests, uh, a royal priesthood. And what priests do is they stand in the gap on behalf of lost, hurting, broken people, situations, places, uh, and we just intercede. And so that's what this season is about. If you haven't signed up, because this is one thing COVID has taught churches all over our country, all over the world. It's why the numbers are down in churches is because this stage audience thing by which we've done church uh, has shown a lot of people that they just don't matter. But this isn't stage audience. This is a we. Uh, We are all part of a team. Uh, We're all pastors. We're all priests. We're all to be in the game. And so uh, as we step into this uh, season, if you're, if you're not signed up yet, just uh, become a part of the team um, and, and step into it. Exciting. So, okay. Our brother Neil Martin, too, in England right now and what God's doing through his church and just some of the doors and opportunities that, that God is just opening up. I'm just seeing this, these kinds of things everywhere. Um, God is on the move, and he's doing it through his church. Okay, so last week we talked about the parable of the sower, and this week uh, we're going to look at two more parables that are going to build on that parable. Uh, Let's turn our Bibles to Mark 4, verse 21. with a sense of anticipation that God is going to speak to us. Let's stand. (laughs) Now, this first part is just a continuation. It's the exclamation point to uh, last week's uh, teaching. So Jesus said to them, do you bring in a lamp and put it under a bowl or a bed No, instead, don't you put it on its stand, for whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. In other words, what Jesus is saying, the time is going to come when the soil of our hearts, it'll all be revealed. We're all going to see the soil that we have and the soil that other people have, have, and that God's going to see it. It's going to be brought into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. And consider carefully what you hear, he continued, because with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you and even more. For instance, whoever has will be given more, and whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. Jesus is not talking about material possessions here. He's talking about what he's talking about, the kingdom of heaven. And to the measure that we step into this, and participate in it is the extent to which we're going to be even given more of it. 
And the extent that we just step away from it and watch it and stand on the sidelines is the extent to which it will be taken from us. And now the two parables that we're going to look at today. He also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. And night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed does what it does. It sprouts and it grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. And as soon as the grain is ripe, it's harvest time. He puts the sickle to it. Again, Jesus said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and he becomes the largest of all the garden plants with such big branches that the birds can perch, make their nest in its shade. And with many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable, but when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. This is God's word. You can be seated. So we learned already in Mark chapter 1 that, that Jesus came to the world with a message and that his message is the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And the way then that he's explaining uh, this is he's using this technique that the rabbis used in his day of, of, of using parables, these short stories. And so... Last week, you know, Jesus said, you know, God's kingdom is, is like a seed that a man took and he planted it. And, and, and where was the seed planted? Well, last week it was in, in the soil. This week, the seed is actually going to be planted in the earth. And you say, well, what's the difference? Well, this week, through the two parables that we're going to look at, um, Jesus can just blow this up. Because the seed of the kingdom doesn't just go into the soil of our hearts, but it's also, as we're going to see today, it's going to go into the earth. In fact, four times in those two parables that we just read, uh, the word earth is used. Sometimes it's translated ground, sometimes it's translated earth, but in the original language, it is the same word. In the first parable, he's, Jesus is just pretty much setting the stage so he can get to kind of his climactic thought uh, of this imagery of seed going into the ground, going into the soil, uh, and that is the parable of the mustard seed. In fact, this parable of the mustard seed uh, is hugely important. I know that because it's in Matthew's gospel. It's in Luke's gospel. Here it is in Mark's gospel. Uh, in Mark's gospel, the seed is planted into a field. In Luke's gospel, the seed is planted into a garden. Uh, Mark, though, picks up on this garden theme because it's important by emphasizing that this seed grows into the greatest of all the garden plants. Uh, in Matthew and Luke, they don't talk about the seed becoming a plant. Instead, they talk about the seed becoming a tree, a great tree. 
And all the accounts of this uh, parable emphasize the tree with its branches and the birds of the air nesting in it and finding shade. What does this teach about the kingdom of heaven? This is not to like put any of us down, but Jesus' audience would have known what Jesus was trying to get at uh, with this parable. And I don't think we know the Hebrew scriptures well enough, um, or at least the way that they did, uh, to, to really know what Jesus is saying here. But remember, as I said last week, everything that Jesus says, you can even push this further, everything that Jesus does, it's all rooted in the text. And their text is what we call the Old Testament. So the question we should be asking, where does the text talk about trees that are planted in a garden? Um, Let me start with this. In the ancient world, the imagery of a tree or sometimes a vine symbolizes either a nation or a kingdom or an empire. That's why in the Old Testament, Israel is oftentimes depicted as this vine or this tree that's planted by God. It's in Isaiah 5. It's in Jeremiah 2. It's in Ezekiel 17. Maybe one of the clearest places is in uh, Psalms, Psalm 80, where it says, And you transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and you planted it. You cleared the ground for it and it took root and it filled the land. This vine that psalmist is talking about is Israel. The mountains then were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches, and the branches reached as far as the sea and the shoots as far as the great river. And so there you even see that this added imagery of not just a vine or a tree planted in the ground, but the imagery of, of, of the branches and the branches reaching far because this is what God created Israel to be, uh, a, a vine or a tree with massive branches providing shade for the nations of the world. In fact, this is why Jonah, if you ever wonder like why when Jonah is kind of camped outside Nineveh, kind of waiting for the fireworks show, like he's just hoping that God is going to rain down his judgment on Nineveh. And as he's waiting, God just miraculously grows up this vine. This vine covers him and and provides shade from the hot sun. What's God doing? He's reminding Jonah, Jonah, this this is who you are. This is what you're called to be. Israel is this vine planted in the ground and you're here to provide shade for the nations. Now this imagery actually uh, gets even more than just being a tree or a vine planted uh, with branches that uh, provide shade. There's also... uh, what the ancients had in their mind of the great world tree. You know, one tree that, that, that rules them all. Uh, you see this great world tree in Ezekiel 31. Uh, Daniel 4 uh, really describes uh, this, this great world tree. Uh, listen to what Daniel 4 says. 
These are the visions I saw while lying in bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the earth. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its branches touched the heavens, and it was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. And under it, the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in the branches. And from it, every creature was fed. Now, this idea of a great tree planted in the center of the world with leaves that touch the heavens is what the ancients would call the axis mundi. The axis mundi is this idea that there's a backbone or a spine to the universe that connects heaven to earth and earth to heaven. And in the ancient mind, uh, the axis mundi could take many different forms. It could be a great mountain. It could be a temple. Uh, This is what Jacob dreamed about, that, that staircase that came down from heaven and touched earth. The Tower of Babel is is this tower, the text says, that reaches, it touches the heavens. This is man's attempt to create this this axis mundi. And so Jesus, in, in this parable, the mustard seed, he's tantalizing his audience with this image, this image that they all know, that they long for. And I don't think it's too much for me to say that this image communicates the whole story of the Bible. One great tree in the center of the world connecting heaven and earth. I think it explains the whole history of the world. Because at the beginning of the biblical story, we read that the world was a paradise. That God creates a world that is good in every way. It was whole. It was complete. It was good. The world was a garden. There was no death or suffering. There was no disease or decay. There was no poverty, no brokenness of any kind. Because in the center of the world was a garden. And in the center of this garden was a great tree. Called the tree of life. And this tree symbolizes why the world was perfectly good. Because earth was connected to heaven and heaven was connected to earth. And the world was plugged into God. It had God. It had his glory. It had his presence. It had his face. And one of the things that I think we quickly forget is that we were not made for this world. We were made for this garden. And even more specific to that, we, whether you know this or not, we were made for God. I mean, he is the environment for which we are made. His his presence and his glory and his face, it's what we need to, to flourish and to thrive. 
In fact, right now, we need God more than we need shelter, more than we need water, more than we need food, more than we even need oxygen. I mean, he is the soil that every human being needs to flourish and to prosper. And unless you and I are planted in him, I mean, at best we'll be a weed. But when we plant ourselves in him, we become what Isaiah 61 describes as these oaks of righteousness. But here's what's tragic about about humanity. Human beings want control. This is why Adam and Eve, they they stiff-armed God They want to be their own masters, their own lords and saviors. And God says, fine. You want to do life without me? I'll remove my presence. And at that moment, when their relationship with God fell apart, everything else in the world fell apart. God withdrew his presence. Heaven became distant from earth. The world was divorced of the great tree of life. And everything unraveled. All shalom was lost. And our world became broken in every way. And that's the world that we live in. But the prophets foresaw a time when when God would once again plant a tree, a world tree, a tree of life, this axis mundi that would reconnect heaven and earth. And the prophets said that, that, that when, when this tree is planted, the presence of God would, would, would re-enter the earth. His glory would once uh, cover and fill the earth the way the waters cover the sea. And, and the earth would again be a paradise, a garden, and all the birds of the air would make their home in its branches. This is just imagery for, for people and cultures Uh, the the birds all just making their home in this tree. Because home is what we lost. And there are people in this room right now, like you, Bernie, who understand that. who understand that this world as it is will never be home as much as we try to make it home. This world is alienated and disconnected from God. In fact, take any good thing that that you might enjoy in this world. It could be a good family. It could be a good marriage. It could be a good job. It could be friendships. It might even be a prosperous life. I don't care how good any of this is, it right now is all moving away from us. It's slipping through our hands. We're losing it. Even the best life that you can imagine is in the process of decay. Everything is falling apart. But the kingdom of heaven is this promise that this great tree is going to be planted And that heaven and earth are going to be reconnected. And heaven's going to come down and it's going to renew earth. And Jesus is saying, 
It's here. It's come. This is what I'm bringing. And he uses parable after parable to get this point across because he wants everyone to know that God's salvation is this kingdom. That's his message. If you want to argue with that, you're arguing with Jesus. <laughs> now, have you ever considered what it means that God's salvation is a kingdom? Well, at the most basic level, it means that, that God's salvation is not just about you. It's, it's actually about the world. That includes you. And I think it's so easy uh, in, in our highly individualistic world to, to make God's salvation all about me, all about this personal and, and private thing between God and me, that God loves me, that God has a wonderful plan for my life, that God forgives me, that God saves me. But the fact that God's salvation is a, is a kingdom, it actually means that it's not just about making me happy and giving me a good life and forgiving my sins and giving me uh, these nice ideas about God here and then the hope of heaven someday. Of course it includes these things. But God's heart is for the whole world. And that's why if you come to Crossroads long enough, you know that I love to bring people to the end of the story in Revelation 21 and 22 because what we see there is not just a few souls escaping this world for a place called heaven. Instead, what we see at the very end of our story, we see heaven coming down and renewing this world because God's grand purpose is far more than to just save your soul. It's to save and redeem the whole world that he made and loves. And the first parable is here to tell us that whether we're dialed into this at all or clued into this, like whether we can see the kingdom of heaven breaking in and breaking out, it's happening. It's going on right now. In fact, Mark chooses this parable uh, right before the parable of the mustard seed. But Luke and Matthew actually choose a different parable. Their, their parable that they choose is uh, the, the leaven that goes into the batch of dough. The batch of dough is the world that God has made. And the leaven is the kingdom. Because once you put leaven in, into dough, it, it's this unstoppable force and it's going to spread throughout the whole lump. And whether we can see it or not right now, that's what's happening. The kingdom of this world is going to become the kingdom of God and of his Christ, says Revelation uh, 11, verse 10. And see, when you and I then start to see things on this cosmic level, not just the seed going into our hearts, but that the seed is actually also going into the earth and that God's salvation is not just about me, uh, but it's also here to restore and to heal the whole world. Of course, it's going to cause us then to, to care about a person's soul, but we're also going to care about things like poverty and injustice and the prisoners that we heard about this morning and the widow and the orphan and the environment because it all matters to God. 
But maybe even more importantly, when we understand God's salvation is a kingdom, this means it's all about a king. Now, we didn't grow up with a king. So let me tell you how you relate to a king. It's different than the way you relate to a friend or a boss or even a president. With a king, you bow, you kneel, you hand over your sword, you give up control, and you offer a king your full allegiance. And Jesus is not just a king. He is the king, and he is the king of this kingdom. Which means when we come to him, we don't come negotiating. We don't make him fit into our agenda. We don't even conform him into what we would like him to be. He is simply the king. And because he's the king, we submit, we trust him with everything. We trust him with our past, with our present, with our future. We trust him with our relationships. We give up control of living for ourselves. We trust him with our time. We trust him with our talents. We trust him with our money. We trust him with our sex life. We literally hand over our entire lives to him. Why? Because he's the king. In fact, this is the only way the kingdom of heaven will break out into our lives is when we relate to him as our king. Now, here's the shocker in this parable. It's the kind of tree <laughs> that the great tree where the birds of the air are going to nest in its branches is a mustard tree. Because even the Bible, when it uses this tree imagery for kingdom greatness, it's usually the great cedars of Lebanon. But a mustard tree. I promise, if, if you were there that day in Jesus' audience, you would have heard people say, are you kidding? Is this a joke? Is Jesus trying to be funny? Because a mustard tree, it can't even hardly be classified as a tree. That's why in our text, it's more of a shrub or a bush. In fact, every farmer in that day uh, wanted to rid their, their garden or their field of, of this tree because it spread like gangrene. It took over the whole field. And maybe this is why Jesus is using this imagery of a mustard seed to teach us that the kingdom of heaven is this invasive, this organically invasive reality that eventually is going to become the biggest and the greatest. And we like that. We love this idea of something becoming the biggest or the best or the, or the largest. I mean, our hearts just run to that kind of stuff. But what about this aspect of smallness? See, I think what oftentimes gets missed in this parable is simply 
Jesus says, this is the tiniest of seeds. Well, if you know anything about God or his story, you know that this is so God's MO. I mean, think about when, when, whenever a new person takes over either an organization, a company, whether it be a new president or a new boss, it could be a new coach, they always bring in their way of doing things, a, a new set of values, a new culture is set. There's, there's a new mode of operation. Well, to quote Psalm 2, God has now set his king on his holy hill And this king is bringing his set of values, his new culture, his mode of operation. And I'll tell you what's at the heart of God's MO. God loves small things. In fact, God's whole agenda is predicated on small. I don't know how we miss this. I'm getting ready to, uh, to leave for Israel. I'll be leading a tour in a couple of days, which uh, the doors are finally open. I'm pretty excited about it. Um, and, and every time I go there, uh, this will probably be my 20th-something trip, I'm always struck, because we immerse ourselves into the biblical story, I'm always struck by how much God loves small and humble. I mean, when God begins this this nation that's going to become as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the sea, he literally finds the most barren couple imaginable. And then barrenness runs through the whole story. Rebecca, Rachel, Hannah, they're all barren. And when God needs a great person to, to do something a little bit greater than normal. Uh, It's always a David who's the least of of eight brothers. It's a Gideon who's from the least tribe, uh, the, the least clan of that tribe, the least family of that clan, the least person of his family. I mean, this is over and over throughout the Bible. Or, or when God, uh, needs a people to become his chosen nation. I mean, think about who he picks and think about what it says in Deuteronomy 7 and 9 about Israel, the the people he picked. God literally just tells them, Israel, I didn't pick you because you were the strongest or the mightiest. I picked you because you were the smallest and the weakest. In fact, he even says, I didn't pick you because you're the most righteous. I picked you. You guys are stubborn and stiff-necked. You look at the land that God put him in. There's no great river. Much of it is a desert. It doesn't even have any great resources. And then over and over again throughout the story, it's the least, it's the smallest, it's the weakest, it's the poorest, it's the barren. So by the time you come to Jesus, the king of the universe, just look at him. He's born in a small, humble village called Bethlehem. He's raised in poor Nazareth. 
The people that he picks for his movement, they're the little people, they're sinners, they're tax collectors, marginalized. And then you look at the people that are also drawn to Jesus. They too are sinners, tax collectors, the ostracized. I mean, in the coming weeks, we're going to kind of see the people that actually come and bow at Jesus' feet, recognizing Jesus to be their king. It's the humble, it's the weak. It's the town idiot. And then how many different ways does Jesus spell out this value? I mean, here he teaches that the smallest of seeds is what's going to become the great tree. I mean, this is so God's way. I mean, Jesus teaches the way to fullness is through emptying yourself. And the way up is by going down. And the way to power is by actually giving up power. That strength comes through weakness, that you get rich by giving, giving it away, that to really be happy uh, is to live to make other people happy. The way to greatness is through smallness. The way to find yourself is actually to lose yourself. And the way to experience true freedom is to say to God, own me, I am all yours. Jesus' kingdom is the world and its values turned upside down. We can't miss this. I think one of the reasons why we do miss it is because look where we live. We live in what the world would call the world's greatest tree, economically, militarily. And everything that we've been taught since we've been young is get big, make it to the top, get noticed, be unique, be, be original, stand out, be liked, leave a good impression. And yet God's whole agenda here is predicated on small and humble Instead of going up, it's about going down. Instead of becoming great, it's about becoming small. Instead of getting power, it's about giving up power. Here's what I want to know. How many people in this room right now are striving to be small? Striving to go unnoticed, striving to live this vulnerable life because of your generosity and giving, striving to be unoriginal. And yet this is so God's heart. As Paul says, he uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He uses the small things of the world to shame the mighty. And God doesn't just love that. God doesn't just value that. God actually loves it so much that he became it. I mean, Jesus became the smallest of seeds. Not only did he become a man, but he became a baby. And not only did he become a baby, 
but he became an embryo. And not only did he become an embryo, but he became a single cell. We're talking about the Lord of the universe. And why did he do that? For you, for us, for the world. For God so loves the world. He became such a tiny seed. He, he went so far down for us. And here's the deal. You, you may be sitting there right now thinking that you're something, but if Jesus had stayed up, we would have all gone down. But because Jesus came down, we can be lifted up. As Jesus said, unless the seed falls in the ground, it remains a single seed. But if it goes into the ground and that seed dies, it produces enormous fruit. And this tiny seed grew into the greatest of trees. And that greatest of trees that the ancients called the Axis Mundi, this great world tree, the spine of the universe, the tree that God puts in the center of the world to reconnect heaven with earth, it's a cross. And if you and I right now want our life reconnected with God, if we want the life of God, the presence of God, the kingdom of God, the power of God, the healing of God, the salvation of God, if we want to be reunited with home, this tree God put in the center of the world, we just have to come to it. And just think about this tree. Through this tree, Jesus not only wins over losing, he wins through losing. He not only triumphs over defeat, but he triumphs through defeat. The way that we receive the power of the seed is the same way the seed was given to us. In weakness, humility, in going low. Humble yourself under God's almighty hand. And he will pick you up. And to end, um, the people in this room that I'm probably most concerned about, which includes myself, are not the small, weak, maybe even people we'd consider to be failures, it's the big people in the room. It's the people who are on top. It's the people who are in control. Because according to the Bible, it's actually the big people who never really get it. They might believe in Jesus, but they never, they never love him. And they never really enter into the kingdom of heaven. I mean, have you ever thought about the dangers of just middle-class status? How it just kind of lulls us into thinking that we have life under control, that because we, we, we have enough, that 
we always know that, that, that we can do what it takes and, and, and get it done and, and keep life under control. We never know what it means to be poor. And see, what this produces, whether we know it or not, it produces this, this attitude, this, this smug, self-sufficient, condescending attitude, an attitude that says, I'm pretty good, my life is good, and therefore I don't really need anything, I don't even need anyone. And then all this middle class way of thinking spills into our relationship with God, and it's just kind of like, God, I got this. A little Jesus will do. If this shoe fits, I challenge you to pray this prayer. Jesus, come into my life and show me how small I really am. Show me how desperate I really am. In fact, God, here's my hand, and would you take it? And would you lead me? Would you lead me down? Would you lead me way down? Would you humble me? Would you break me? Or today, maybe you're on the other side of the coin and you're actually, Rod, my life is actually going down. It's going way down. And it could be in some humiliating defeat. It could just be through something bad that's happening to you right now. It might be a failure that you're, you're experiencing in your life or you just might feel like you're just flat out losing. Let me give you the good news of the gospel. That the way up is to go down. And so as you're going down, look for Jesus. Because I promise you he'll be there and get to him, find him, throw yourself at his feet, and I promise you, he will bring you up. Blessed, said Jesus, are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God, let this seed be planted in our hearts. And God, may it bear enormous fruit. Fruit that causes us to look like you, Jesus. Humble, meek, low. Therefore, God highly exalted him. God, burn that into our lives, into our walk. In Jesus' name.